0: Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.
1: Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. This is Dan Lebitard. And I believe that what you're about to hear is one of my favorite conversations that we've ever had on South Beach Sessions. I admire this man's work so much, the meticulousness of the crafts, the craftsmanship and the sculpting. The honor to truth and the, uh, the, the care that he takes with these projects that seem breathtaking in scope. Ken Burns is a creative hero of mine just because of how he makes things, and so we deconstruct the creative process for him, where it comes from, and he gives you the objective truth as he sees it in his films, but also he talks very strongly about America's history. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did because I found it illuminating as well as fun as PBS can be, because you don't associate PBS with echoing laughter across the eternities. But this is a loose Ken Burns. I don't think that you guys have seen him this way. And so I enjoy this conversation. I hope you do, too. A giant fan of this man's work, he takes really, really hard things to do and makes them well, makes them thoroughly a tapestry as a documentarian he really is an artist we are pleased to have at metal arc media lynn novick who has helped him with many of his projects but ken burns i'm uh, i've told you off air and i'm telling you on air i just can't believe the things that you tackle and the degree of difficulty you've got an ali film now everything has been said about ali this subject matter has been covered but you love tackling things that uh, that are hard to tackle
3: well thank you first of all this is a film um that is co-directed by sarah burns my daughter and her husband david mcmahon we collaborated on the central park five and jackie robinson um we felt that there are lots of really good films on muhammad ali i mean really in many cases great films on muhammad ali uh some take a particular fight some take a couple of years in his life none we felt were doing what we're always interested in is that kind of soup to nuts the from you know birth in the forties in Jim Crow Louisville Kentucky to death by Parkinson's not that many years ago to 2016 and all that's in between so not just boxing in the course of our film you'll get inside maybe 25 boxing matches with the help of a lot of commentators and sports writers who were there and the help of michael bent uh the former heavyweight champion who's so fantastic but you also get to know about his childhood and how he got into boxing his early years of boxing um his his wives, four of them. His children, his friends. The intersection with the nation of Islam and with Islam in general. Uh, the American civil rights movement. Of course, his his refusing induction into the draft in the U.S. Army. So it's a contextualized um, uh, Muhammad Ali. But what comes through is that he is without a doubt the greatest athlete of the 20th century i probably the greatest athlete of all times but he's also this avatar this kind of prophet of love and kindness that made him uh, when he died in 2016 he died the most beloved person on the planet which is you know something the rest of us can only dream of
1: you say that but jim brown famously said of muhammad ali he didn't become america's he didn't go from america's most hated athletes to its most beloved until he lost his ability to speak when yeah. he when he had the microphone you stripped down Hemingway uncomfortably you stripped down Hemingway and took a lot of the myth away I'm guessing that Muhammad Ali probably falls on the right side of history so often that you see he's even better than you thought he was do I have that wrong or did you were you able not to strip this away where you have it you have it exactly right Dan it's very uh, thoughtful
3: and astute the last film I did on Ernest Hemingway didn't end so well it ended with a inflicted shotgun blasts alone in Ketchum Idaho this ends with somebody who has punched through Uh, but Jim Brown is absolutely right uh, in one way that is to say he was one Muhammad Ali was one of the most divisive figures of the 60s and and early 70s but I would suggest it was less the Parkinson's that brought him back to us than the fact that he was right on so many things when he comes back after three and a half years of absence at the height of his, uh, his career and loses to Joe Frazier after winning a couple of bouts um, he he's he becomes a champion he gets up on, on that last round after he's knocked down and he still fights on and he's incredibly modest and incredibly Um, well-spoken afterwards. He talks about everyone having loss in their lives and people lose jobs and they lose loved ones and they lose titles. And he was trying to say that he had a responsibility to all those people that are gonna lose things, meaning everybody. And then, of course, he comes back and reclaims the title and does it yet again. And then, you know, I'm reminded by your excellent question or Jim, you know, channeling Jim Brown, of something Michael J. Fox said the actor who also has Parkinson's. He said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. I think in some ways, Muhammad Ali couldn't really speak as great a speaker, as funny a speaker, as wonderful, as challenging as 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 just right a speaker as he was until he couldn't speak. I mean, somehow, he continued doing what he said he was going to do, which is serve others. He said, service to others is your rent for your room in heaven, and that 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 was Muhammad Ali. And his daughter, Rashida, at the end of the film says, you know, boxing was just this much, just a tiny part of it, and he could have been something else, like a simple carpenter, and we know where simple carpenters go. So, I, I just think there it's a complicated dynamic, and this is, what's been so gratifying is that people. People within his circle, people within his family, the critics, uh, some of the historians who know about him, said, wow, I learned things about Muhammad Ali I thought I knew and I didn't know. And that's, that's, that's music to our ears. They're seeing footage that they have never seen before. They're seeing still photographs. We, we spent seven years on this. We, we, we are obligated to try to, to give you a kind of dynamic and nuanced Ali with all the undertow there. We don't pull any punches. No pun intended, you know, the warts and all when he fails or when he has failings, we are quick to point them out uh, But all in all, he's one of the most amazing human beings
1: I've ever gotten to know Tom, do one of the great magazine writers ever was an atheist when he went to go visit mr. Rogers and he left that experience so admiring just the kindness of mr rogers that you can say he found god a lifelong atheist when you're doing this on muhammad ali do you come away moved by just what he endured the arc of the story and how he was ahead of his time on race relations and on love that's exactly it what a good way to say
3: it i don't know how i could improve on it yes he is a transcendent figure that means whatever the sum of his parts equal, there's always something more. And I think all of us are curious about that. We live in a world, uh, a binary world, that's interested in good and bad, right and wrong, on and off, and it just doesn't work that way. We also live in a world in which one and one equals two, and it has to equal two, otherwise bridges don't stand, buildings collapse, lots of stuff doesn't occur. But the thing that we're most interested in is when one and one equals three. We looked at for that in our relationships, in our love, in our faith, in our art, whatever it might be. Um and that's what Ali delivers all the time. Just a sense that that there is an improbable calculus in the world and he understood it better than just about anybody. Louis Armstrong is the only other person I've come in contact with, an American, that has come to understand The possibility of love. This is a four letter word the FCC allows you and me to use all the time, but we don't use it that often because it's so hard. It's so embarrassing. It's so misunderstood. It seems so uh, uh, inappropriate or awkward for, for many people. And yet, that's his overwhelming message. And, you know, billions of people were drawn
1: to him and his story. Billions. Nobody else. I don't know anyone else who could say that. What drew you to this story? You must pick your projects meticulously. The degree of difficulty on your projects is ridiculous. Well, you know, it, it
3: we're drawn because it is a good story, and that's what we're in the business of. It's it, you know, story, story, story. Number one, two, and three. And this is great. It has majesty. It has complication. It has contradiction. It has controversy it has undertow, and that's really important. We live in an age where we lament the absence of heroes because we presume that heroes are somehow perfect. The Greeks have been telling us for thousands of years that heroes aren't perfect. Achilles has his heel and his hubris to go along with his great uh, fl- uh, great strengths. And so it's the negotiation, sometimes the war between someone's uh, inner strengths and weaknesses that defines heroism and, of course, defines a good story. So this is, this is a classic American story. This this is a hero's journey, a rags-to-riches story. It's the story of America's age-old question of race. Um, you know, it's there's a moment, Dan, a really wonderful moment when the Supreme Court exonerates him. Uh, he's been convicted of avoiding of, of the draft, refusing induction, and sentenced to five years. He loses three and a half years of the prime his, his career. Supreme Court unanimously, on a technicality, uh, let him go. And somebody asks him, a reporter sticks a mic in his face and says, what do you think about the system? And he says, You know, well, I don't know who's going to be assassinated tonight. I don't know who's going to suffer injustice or inequality. And so here is this guy who could be lauding his great victory. And instead, he looks back to 350 years of the treatment of African Americans on this continent, thinking about Emmett Till, whose open casket he, as a boy, almost the same age as Emmett Till, saw and it deeply affected him, all the way back to 1619. And then, of course, all the way forward to things he couldn't possibly know that were yet to come like Rodney King and um, Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so he was speaking yeah okay so I got it but this doesn't mean the struggle is over and to have that kind of composure and being still in your 20s I think uh, or or early 30s is just is just lunacy it's mystifying. lunacy
1: it's lunacy because he was 60 years ahead of his time and we still don't have an athlete who can tackle this stuff the way, with the facility he did exactly right and people say well aren't aren't the modern day athletes who are using their
3: their position to social media they're very important as imp- there's only i can only think of you know Carlos and Smith from his time who suffered the ultimate you know, penalty for speaking out at, by raising their fists at the 68 Olympics and then Colin Kaepernick. I mean, you could say Kurt Flood too, because he was the first trial balloon against free agency and that was it. Goodbye, Kurt. And it would take a couple of white guys to begin to make the process happen. But Colin Kaepernick suffers. So, you know, when people are doing standing up for things, which is really important and people in sports shouldn't shut up and dribble, they should do whatever they, they want to do and say the things they're, they're really important spokespeople out there they're not putting it on the line in the way that Muhammad Ali he said I'd face a firing squad I'd face a machine gun rather than go against my religious teaching, which was to go fight in a war. And and you know that takes an extraordinary amount of courage, uh, well beyond what we see today, and he is still teaching us today. That's what's so interesting, that he, all, his life can intersect with all the major themes of the last half of the 20th century, but he's intersecting with everything that's going on today, good and bad. And, and he's speaking to it, and there's a wonderful shot towards the very end of the film of a, of a young black woman in protest across the Brooklyn Bridge, and we, we, don't, we consciously don't tell you what the protest is about. It's just a cutaway from um, something that uh, one of our commentators, Howard Bryant, is saying. Um, but she's wearing a T-shirt, just a simple black T-shirt, and it says Muhammad Ali on it, as if that alone
1: was enough to go, Phew, you know, that's it. Muhammad Ali, do I need to say anything more? I want to talk to you about the project some more, and I don't know how much time we have with you, but I just love a lot of your details in a lot of your work. So before we get back to Muhammad Ali, I'd just like to get to the roots of how you became this as a creator. What in your childhood drew you to the roots of, I want to tell stories that take seven years to tell?
3: Yeah, well, the biggest thing is that... Um, my mom got sick with cancer when I was two or three and died a little bit short of my 12th birthday when I was 11. And um, that's the defining moment, everything. Every, there's not a day that it goes by. and. Uh, Uh, My late father-in-law was an eminent psychologist, and he said, what do you think you do for a living? You wake the dead. You make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson and Louis Armstrong come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? And so I think a lot of this sort of uh, attention to deep and complicated stories. Um, Also, my mom was really sick at a time when the civil rights movement was happening. And so I remember this extraordinary anxiety as a little boy of nine or 10 as the dogs and fire hoses at Selma and the truncheons were unleashed on innocent people. And I kind of transferred the anguish of the cancer that was killing my family to the cancer that was killing my country. And so I've always been interested in as deep a dive as you can do in American history. And and you can't even scratch the surface without coming up against race. And I don't mean to separate it and segregate it and wait until February to show it in Black History Month. I mean, it's just part of everything. Like we know why we were founded on this one sentence. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And the guy who wrote it owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the hypocrisy I mean that that is gotta be part of of how we, we deal with things. I've done a biography with Jefferson that is both laudatory and incredibly critical. And that's the, that's right too. And as you'll see, you know, as you know from the tough, tough time we gave Ernest Hemingway, and you'll see the tough time we give Muhammad Ali, it's really a kind of means testing. We don't do vi- uh, valentines. We do complicated stories and everybody's complicated. And so what happens is, is we've got, A country that tries to pretend that it can sanitize and make into a Madison Avenue commercial our history, and you cannot do that. It's much more complicated, but hallelujah, it is much more interesting to tell a more complete story, and it widens the lens. It gives more people more voices. It gives more cast of characters. It shows the push and pull of things that that sanitized version just never does. It's not satisfying. I'm so surprised that Texas is trying to change their, their laws to teach only a perfect version. You can't say anything bad about slavery because Texas, its religion is football, and on a Friday night in high school and on a Saturday afternoon in college, they're going, we stunk. We were pretty good on defense, but we were terrible on offense and special teams we really need to do work or everything seemed to be clicking but there's a sense that the truth what actually happened is important to your future success and if you want to succeed as a football team or a country you need to be absolutely sure of exactly where you are good bad and otherwise at any moment and those are the kinds of stories that we're interested in we're being drawn to and yeah the degree of difficulty has always got to be tough because you want to say it's not as simple as you think think about all of the self-sacrifice of World War II. People had victory gardens turned in scrap. One quarter of every transaction made during World War II was in the black market. So yeah, people saved their bacon grease. People saved their scrap. People knitted stuff, did, did their victory gardens. It was all good. But one quarter of the country was trying to get it on the cheap. Gasoline or whatever it might be. And that's just true and part of the story. Like, we stunk on special
1: teams. I was just going to ask you why and how you go from New Hampshire farm to racial theories in just about every deep dive that you're doing and tackling race head on. How did that happen is what I was going to ask you, but you just answered, didn't you? Yeah.
3: And I live, I've i lived here uh, for 42 years, Dan, this week, um, because I moved here when I was working on my first film um, and realized in New York that I had to get a a real job or otherwise i'd put that film that i'd shot up on the uh, on the top of the refrigerator and to wake up 25 years later and it wouldn't be done and so i went to some place where i could live for nothing and figure out how to make films in history but the point is is that i don't necessarily go looking for it i, I don't race is the central question it's what historians say is our original sin i mean how can you say create a country based on distilling the enlightenment into one remarkable sentence we hold these truths to be self-evident and then not address the fact that since 1619 you've been holding other people as slaves it just it, it 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 didn't compute then and people began to speak up about it four score and five years later the civil war started you know And we're still, you know, the first progress in civil rights after the Civil War is Jackie Robinson walking out onto a baseball diamond on April 15th, 1947. This this is way too long for this stuff to still be going on. And, you know, Chris Rock, the comedian, says, look, look, you know, I'm a multimillionaire and none of you would trade places for me with a second. So, you know, we're, we just, this stuff has been going on for too long. We need to have a much more inclusive and a much more equitable way and a much diverse, more diverse way of telling our histories. And so I've, I've just tried to do my little part in PBS just saying that, you know, if you're going to tell about World War II, it, race is going to be part of it. Obviously, if you tell the story of Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali, race will be part of it. But it's true of the of of you know the national parks. The first defenders of the parks were the Buffalo Soldiers, the woolly-haired African American cavalrymen who protected the park from poachers and 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 hunters. So it's 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 just around and an important part of of who we are. In fact, a lot of critics and a lot of friends even and and colleagues would say, would you stop talking about race? And when Barack Obama was elected, they held, they, they would say, now will you shut up? And I held up the copy of The Onion that said, black man given worst job in country. And I said, just watch what happens. And you know, all we've seen since 2008, and you know, in the last 13 years has just been stuff we never thought would happen. Retreat on things we thought we'd gotten past. People would say, would you please be quiet about it? We're post-racial. If if there's anyone out there that thinks we're post-racial,
1: please raise your hand. Help me with this, Ken, because as a documentarian, you are interested in fact-soaked objective truths. My guess is that I could say of Ken Burns' work, he's not telling you he's not trying to tell you his truth with a slant or an agenda. He's trying to give you all of the facts so that this is the truth as close as he could come to it with seven years of of meticulous care so you are objective as a historian there's and no
3: a, there, there's no such thing as objective we're all subjective we bring our own baggage the selection we do you know this eight hours of of ali had eight, you know 50 times that in the amount of material that we collected so you can't you know you're always going to make a selection storytelling is itself the editing of human experience so everything is going to have a degree of subjectivity but and everybody obeys the same laws as storytelling steven spielberg obeys the same laws that I do. The only difference is he can make stuff up. I can't make anything up. But by selecting to tell this story, to emphasize the second day on Little Round Top in the Battle of Gettysburg, and not do Culps Hill and more time on this. I'm I'm influencing stuff like that.
1: It aspires to be a fair recall yes, of sir. historic events. And here you are on you are you're not being objective. And I happen to find you on the right side of truth. But the way that you speak of race in this country is not in any way whitewashed. You are speaking of it as the plain sort of same truth, but with a degree of indignation behind it. I'm surprised still to see, you tell me as a thorough researcher of this stuff, I underestimated, badly underestimated how bad the race problem was in this country. And I was polarizing and left Disney, at least in part, because I wouldn't shut up about race.
3: Yeah, well, that, I, I applaud you for that. That's the problem. I think everybody was like, now we're post-racial. We don't have to talk about it. But tell that to Tamir Rice's mom. He's a 12-year-old kid with a plastic gun in a Cleveland park. Tell that to Trayvon Martin that's just going for a jog in a Florida suburb. Tell that to Breonna Taylor, who's just sitting in her bedroom room, you know, and it's an oops, wrong mistake. Tell that to George Floyd. You know, these are people that are murdered. None of us, you know, I, I always thought that COVID the year, the, you know, in 2020, it reminded us a little bit, we were able to have a little bit of a racial reckoning. Well, now we say it so often that it's not happening, that in large part, because it was never a problem for us to go to the convenience store white people to go to the convene. Now it was, you know, am I going to get sick? Am I going to get this disease? Am I going to die? And, and all of a sudden, if you had a brain in your head or a, more important, something beating in here, you would say, my goodness, this has been an average." Aff- I mean, mothers never knew in 1890, whether their kid was going to come home from school, you know, alive. I mean, this is what, this is, this is a story and this is us as much of all the wonderful things that we've done in my films document those wonderful things as well. It's just really important that we are honest about what what's going on. And it doesn't take, as Bob
1: Dylan said, a weatherman to tell you which way the wind is blowing. Did you underestimate it? As a thorough chronicler of facts gathered about what America's fabric is, did you, Ken Burns, get surprised by how bad it is? No now i'm I'm disappointed by what's been going on now the sort of
3: eating away and the eroding of voting rights the voter suppression stuff the the civil rights bill and the and the voting rights bill of the mid sixties i I was stunned that that people could figure out a way to justify to do that so I guess I'm surprised in that regard, but I'm not surprised um, at all uh, by the presence of this. It's been around for as long as 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 there are people and Particularly so in the in the unique dynamic of the United States particularly with all its promise and it's and it's it's Expectation of exceptionalism that if you do Expect you to be exceptional then you certainly have to behave like it And the only way you can behave like it is to go back through your closet and say what did we do wrong? What are we doing wrong? How can we do better now and in the future
1: because lives are at stake. We've only been a democracy, for real, for 60 years, but Monty Jones points that out all the time, but it's a jarring, it, it sort of hits people in the face when you say that. You are looking at the last four years, and Ken Burns reacts how? Well, I, I, I think that we're in as great a crisis as we've
3: ever been. I used to say the three great crises were the Civil War, the Depression, and World War II. I think this combination of COVID, um, the three viruses of COVID, uh, racial, injustice that's 402 years old and uh, the age-old human virus of misinformation, conspiracy, paranoia, you know, lies, all of that are conspiring to put us in an incredibly frightful thing. None of these are without precedent, Dan. Unfortunately, where some of these things have manifested are unprecedented. Never have we had something at the highest office in the land reflect the kind of things that used to be um, very, very fringe kinds of beliefs, beliefs that have been around for as long as as we've been around. I can take you back to the 1830s and the know-nothings, anti-immigrant, anti-black, anti-Catholic, all of that sort of stuff. It's all there, just as you can go back 100 years to the pandemic before that and see things that, that look similar. But we didn't have half a nation in total denial about, about science, right? Um, it's just, and, and promoted by people who think it's in their political best interest to continue to promote that kind of thinking. Are you scared Yeah, I'm scared for my republic. I I mean, I'm not I'm I I feel like my job. I know what my job is supposed to be and to tell complicated stories about the u.s but also complicated stories about us that is to say the the lowercase two-letter plural pronoun so all of all of the intimacy of us and all of the complexity and the majesty of of the u.s and what i learned in all of my years is that there's only us there's no them and whenever anyone tells you anyone tells you there's a them run away and unfortunately the people who are, who are adept at identifying the other, the alien, the them, have gotten a lot of traction in, in recent years. And, and it's, you know, it's too bad we're having deathbed confessions from people saying, oh, I should have gotten the vac- vaccination. It just meant they got their news in the wrong place.
2: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium?
1: Do you have, and forgive the awkward transition, but a dream project that you have not done? I don't know whether, like Tarantino films, when you've attacked the subject matter you've attacked, you've told, I, I think you regard it as such, the definitive American story on the telling of whatever that is, from baseball to the Civil War. You, I, I, I'm guessing you could say without too much pride and ego, you are the final word on the subjects that you chronicle, no?
3: Well, I would not say definitive or Final. I, I would say we're comprehensive until the next person comes along and, and says I want to talk about this or open up this moment that is you know the the uh, the the night in Miami story uh, is two sentences in our film about Ali and and we wrote those sentences well before that movie was even made and and so they exist and it's like oh great there's somebody who's really opened it up there's uh, definitive is is just a ridiculous thing because you can discover new information you can learn new stuff you can discover new archives somebody shows up as a witness and it changes everything so so what you want to try to be is comprehensive for the moment and I feel that very much about the Civil War very much about baseball and jazz and the national parks and the the smaller stuff like the Dust Bowl and Huey long and and um, and and uh, the Roosevelt's and the Vietnam War country music and this Ernest Hemingway, but but I'm, I'm I have no ego to say that somebody can't come on PBS. It's themselves since 2008 shown three other documentaries on Muhammad Ali.
1: I'm you know I'm just the fourth. Is there a project you're proudest of just because even you regarded, I mean, the the Vietnam, I just don't un- know how you found that uh, the ability to tell that story. Uh, but well, then I, I would also say Hemingway trying to tell a six hour story about words is is fairly hard and ambitious, yeah, too. No,
3: they're all you know, they've all got d- degrees of difficulty, Dan. And and you're very nice to say that. I, you know, I think that probably Vietnam was the hardest, but they're like my kids. You know, uh, Let me cop out the way Duke Ellington, who's our greatest, I believe, and and certainly our most prolific American composer. Somebody asked him what's his most important composition, and he said, the one I'm working on now. So I I can talk to you till I'm blue in the face about Ali, and i got another film coming that I'm just finishing on Benjamin Franklin, then another one on the U.S. and the Holocaust, the interrelation of what we knew and what we didn't know, what we did and what we didn't do, and what we should have done, all of that complicated stuff that mirrors the racist and anti-immigrant stuff that we hear today and on we're doing a big our next war is a big history of the American Revolution all of those are floating my boat look I'm 68 years old if I were given a thousand years to live which I am NOT I wouldn't run out of topics in American history and you want to be able to say in conversation with you which is why I've been with PBS the whole time this is the secret ingredient like I could go to a streaming service I could go to a premium channel and get all the money I need to make Vietnam but they'd never give Lin and me ten and a half years to do it They would just not do it. They'd say in two and a half years, but we raise most of the money. It's a pain in the neck, but we do it. And and so when we print it, it's our director's cut. And we can come to you and say, if you don't like this, it's all my fault that's it and that's the way it should be and so we're just I I just I'm working on so many projects frankly because I'm greedy I'm greedy for what happens in our process with the extraordinary people I work with Lynn is one producing strand Um, this uh, Sarah and Dave are another producing strand there's two others we're working on all these different projects at once and I just can't get enough of it and all I want to know at the end of the day when I put my head on the pillow is that I made one or all of them slightly better you know and I can wake up the next morning and go boy that idea sucked let's you know let's undo that and and think about this a new way but you know we're just we put our pants on one leg at a time and the thing is it when, when a film comes out, that's the signpost for you, the mile marker. For us, it's just a daily process of trying to tell a story that's very complex. And in the beginning, if you came into our in- editing room and looked at Vietnam. You go, man, Ken, I thought you were good, but this sucks. And then we just polish that. We just work and work and try to make it better until we feel like we've done it. We've satisfied the, the kind of demands that, that we had of ourselves and that we've told a good and complicated story.
1: Your loved ones? Is there other places where this OCD sculpting makes an appearance that makes them <laughs> totally crazy because of the grind of of just how? I mean, I don't even know if you could take me sort of through the discipline of what your process is. I yeah, can- well, the
3: process the process is pretty simple. I, well, first of all, I have four daughters; they're the most important co productions I have, and they range from Sarah Burns, my oldest, who is um, is you know. Pushing 39, I think, and uh, is a mama of her own. And, um, uh uh, I, my youngest is the same age as as Sarah's daughter. So, you know, I've got a whole spread. My second daughter is a big producer of uh, Samantha B and Russian Doll and Dezus and Marrow and Search Party and Broad City and, and lots of different stuff. She's got the bug, but in a, a different department. I got a 16 year old and they all make films. That That's what I care about. The biggest thing I'll say about process is most people work set research period set writing period script comes out written in stone it informs shooting and editing we never stop researching and we never stop writing which means we're open to the very very end i've got a neon sign in my editing room which we're just about to reopen up and it says in lowercase um, cursive it's complicated like every filmmaker if you've got a scene that's working nobody wants to touch it nobody wants to open it up though that's fine and we open it up if we find something new that destabilizes it, so be it maybe it'll make the two adjacent scenes that much better but we just want to have the courage to to permit there to be undertow. And I think sometimes in our business, and you know it, there's a, there's a desire to just streamline it and tell a kind of palatable, easy-to-digest stuff. And, and you're not going to get it from us.
1: What is the tool in your toolbox on that front that you enjoy the most on the work front? Is it research? Is it discovering something? Is it writing? Is it stitching it together? Is it tying it to history? Like, which one is the one that you regard as your most vital?
3: You know, there's four moments that are really great. You know, when you're when you're out shooting, it might be an archive or you're alive stuff, and you know it's going to be in the film. It's just great. You've gotten up at dawn, whatever. You've found some odd thing, and it's it's great. Uh, there's Moments in writing that are like that, but to me, and then there's now the evangelistic side. But the most imp- that is to say, we're we're out proselytizing. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You really have to see it. Um, and I apologize for the animation and the energy, but I I love these films down to my soul. But the best part is the editing, where you're just taking stuff and and suddenly you see the birth of real story happening, and you go. Holy cow! That's great. Or you know, I did a thing in viet You know the Vietnam film, so I just said, "Run this backwards. Start with this. Like, let's just pull a, a a helicopter pushed off the deck of an aircraft carrier out in the South China. Let's pull it back up onto the deck. Let's have the tanks, the NVA tanks, pull you know un unbreak down the barrier of the presidential palace take us all the way. Let's suck the bullet out of the head of the guy assassinated on the streets of Saigon in the middle of the Tet offensive." let's have that little girl napalm run backwards into the smoke let's go back to that first french troop walking backwards in a swamp and then let's go forward again it was just saying forget everything let's just reset forget Forget what you think you know about Vietnam. I'll forget what I think I know about Vietnam, which I thought was a lot and turned out to be nothing. Every day of that ten and a half years was a humiliation. And then let's just re-put it together. You'll see each one of those pieces of film going forward, but you'll see them now in a context and in a rich environment that belies the simplicity of our conventional wisdom, which is the, which is the enemy
1: of so many things. I want to ask you a simple question and a complicated question off that. The simple one is, do you really like puzzles? I do
3: the New York Times crossword puzzle in ink every day. That's it. Uh, But I like trying to figure out what part of a story that you can do. So you would assume, you you, you ask such great questions. So you would presume that making a film is like architecture, right? It's like building a house, right? And it is to some extent, but it's really more it's less about addition than it is about subtraction. So we have that, I live in New Hampshire, so I'll break down and use the cliched metaphor. We have the 40 gallons of maple sap to make one gallon of maple syrup. And so I love that process. The presumption is the cutting room floor is filled with bad stuff. A cutting floor is filled with great stuff and some stuff that might even be better than any particular thing that's in the film, but it destabilizes the film and having the ability to work on that and understand the distilling to kick out the scaffolding to kick out the false work and go, okay. This is standing on its own two legs. What does it still need? What does the material speak to me? I mean, everybody's about imposing themselves on the material. What's the material telling us? And how do I honor that person who says, oh, I'm interested in Muhammad Ali. I know it's more than boxing and I'm going to give Ken eight hours. I am now honor-bound to give you an experience, a cinematic experience that you will not fall out of, that you will attend to. And, you know, and and God bless you for giving me that, that amount of time. And I am honor bound to honor your attention to me.
1: The hard question when you say that you thought you knew what Vietnam was and you didn't know a fraction of what Vietnam was, when you parse through those horrors, do you see them playing out again in Afghanistan right now in real time across today's news because of what you know of, of course. what this country and what this government is capable of? Yeah, of course, of course.
3: And it it doesn't necessarily point to a very simple good and bad, black and white, you know, uh, kind of thing. Uh, It's just, so we like to say history repeats itself. It never, ever has, Dan. It's never repeated itself. The universe would come to a stop if it did. Um, Mark Twain is supposed to have said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And what that suggests is that human nature remains the same the ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the Sun meaning what has been done will be done what has been what has been will be again there's nothing new under the Sun so human nature doesn't change and so we see these themes these motifs these rhymes happening all the time whenever I finish a film and I swear to you we we focus intently on getting that film right you lift up and then you can't help but be shocked by how much it's rhyming in the present I could do that with Vietnam give you the stump speech for that and blow your mind with how much was exactly what was going on in 2017 but I could do the same thing with the Civil War or the Brooklyn Bridge or the Dust Bowl or prohibition all of these things when you study something in the past and you do a good job about it and you render the the people dimensional and real complicated then it's going to speak to the present because human beings remain the same—the same amount of greed and generosity, the same amount of purience and puritanism. It's all—it's all there, and you can watch it play out in in lots of different ways.
1: I've got a thousand questions, but we're pressed for time, so I will just leave you this as a promotion for the film. When Ken Burns looks at American history, I want to ask you top three American musicians or top three American artists of all time. But wherever it is and however it is, top three religious figures, Ali and the movie that you're now making, if you were going through all of American history as you know it and saying I would place him top of the category where in American history?
3: So he's obviously, I mean, uh, I think it was light, uh, a Time and Newsweek and Sports Illustrated all said he was the athlete of the century. So I accept that and I can have an argument in a bar about the greatest athlete of all time. But let's just say maybe the best way to do this is that if I could have a dinner party with four people besides myself, so a table of five, I would have Abraham Lincoln. I would have Louis Armstrong, I would have Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and I would have um, Muhammad Ali. I'm as excited about this film as anything we've done, and a lot of it has to do with that thing about him that you thought you knew, and it's really much more complicated and much more interesting
1: very excited to watch it thank you for sharing this time it was a pleasure please let's do it again because i i really do i have a thousand more questions i could tell and i'm i you know what i i give
3: you my word i'm happy to come back anytime you want dan
1: i hope we didn't take too much of your time i know we ran uh ran over but like i I just cool. uh, you're 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 a data bank. It's better than Wikipedia. It's just it's better than Wikipedia. It's it, it, <laughs> I, I can ask you anything and you know the roots across eight eight decades because you've been studying it your whole I life.
3: And you know you once you it's like your kids, right? It's why I made that analogy. Once once what's that films in? If you want me to talk for an hour about my first film Brooklyn Bridge that I finished in eighty, you know it was out in eighty one. I'm happy to talk for an hour about that or the next film. On, you don't the ever Shady. get
1: sick of them, huh? You don't you don't want because when I was listening to you talk one of the things that i was thinking to myself is my god this man has a library of history on the cutting room floor like does yeah. he remake that stuff into no, anything no, or- no 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 because it's like it's the it's
3: it's a piece of stone brought to the sculptress's studio right whatever we see in the gallery or in the museum is you know but she has to honor the the um Negative space of creation. What's not there? What's the rubble on the floor? But that rubble doesn't make part duh in Hollywood's uh, parlance. It doesn't make a second film I mean, I did revisit baseball with the 10th inning so I could deal with steroids I could deal with the Red Sox winning my team. I could deal with money I could deal with the Braves and the Yankees oh, But I wasn't thinking of a this... second
1: film I was thinking yeah. of telling yeah. all those stories so the all so that history doesn't die telling them yeah. in like an audio well, form. We, That's what I want to
3: get. That's what these films are are and i started this website called unum after e pluribus unum and it's basically curating the evergreen themes from all the films so we have like mixtape if you will you know take race or politics or innovation or art or women or whatever it might be and and there's you can splice together all of these fans
1: fans of your work would love to bury their noses in your cutting
3: room floor go, go to unum it's it's great you would love it it's fantastic
0: Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.